survivor of trafficking, Sean Wheeler speaks out to help people understand that boys are trafficked too. He seeks to break the myths about the impacts of trafficking on boys and men who are survivors. Boys have fewer resources available to deal with the impacts resulting from all types of abuse. Sean asks this question, how is the rape of any child okay? Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Before five years of age, predators came into Sean Wheeler's life who used him for sexual purposes until he was nine years old. By age seven, Sean was used in child pornography along with another boy, a girl, and several adults. By the age of nine, he was drinking, smoking, and addicted to pornography. When his family eventually moved away from that small Midwestern town they were living in, the damage was already done, but God rescued him. Today, Sean Wheeler is here to share his incredible story. Welcome, Sean. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you uh, for having me. Well, I look forward to it. what you are going to share is not just your story, but what we as a society can do to help and also to become aware. And so we have a lot of ground to cover, and I thank you. My first question to you, and I think one of the biggest questions my audience would ask, is how in the world does this happen? So you can answer that from both your story and also possibly what parents and all of us as concerned individuals need to know. It happens in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, for me, it began very young. The grooming started when I was even before I entered preschool. Around the age of five, between five and six, they, there was a network where we lived that was aware of me, that the grooming had begun, and they had, had oh, instructed yeah, and instructed a couple of their older boy teenage boy members to uh to sort of ramp ramp it up a notch and so they eventually got me away um the one got me into a shed where he sexually assaulted me and then he hit me and and uh or he threatened to and threatened to kill my dog and you know hurt the family nobody's gonna want you all that stuff so you hear that and so you know he introduced me more graphically to uh, sexual abuse in that moment, and uh, it just took off from there. 
Um, later, he would introduce me to some other friends his age. Then eventually adults came into the, into the picture, men and women. I would be taken to various locations uh, and you know abused and then returned. And so it's not always a case where people are, are stolen away. And I've heard of it more with, with teenagers, middle school and high school types. They get picked up, they get used, they get returned home, and they just keep quiet about it. Um, in my case, it was a small town that we grew up in. And back in that day, it was not uncommon for little kids to go outside and play. You know, you'd go out after breakfast and you'd come home after lunch or at lunch. You'd go out after lunch and come home at dinner. And, you know, it was in those time frames that people would find me and take me off and do their thing and then bring me back. And there was always threats. There were other times when I definitely got hit and threatened, you know, with even worse being killed. About age seven, I was taken to a house in the country and that's where they... They call it, uh, they don't call it child pornography anymore. I don't really care what name they use. Uh, the current term is CSAM, child sexual abuse material. But that's the house in which they uh, produced the, you know, took the pictures. You know, I had my voice sort of taken away because I would protest early on when they started doing that. And then they finally beat me into silence. So I lost my voice. That day I lost my image. Because in that house, there was, as you mentioned, another boy, a girl, and three adults, two men and one woman. You know, the, the sound of that camera just bothered me. Um, for years, I hated having my picture taken because I honestly didn't think it belonged to me anymore. And then other things continued after that time till we finally moved away from that town. By that point, um, as you mentioned, I, I knew how to smoke. I knew how to drink. Um, I'd certainly seen enough pornography, uh, adult and child pornography. And, and it, you know, it, all of that seemed normal to me at the time. I should probably change my terminology because I don't know that I was addicted. I just think for me in my situation, for a lot of kids like that, that that's just your normal. And, you know, obviously at seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you don't have the ability to know that that is definitely not normal. Um, as I grew into a teenager, as with a lot of kids who were abused, became just very promiscuous. And if people would hit on me, I just assumed that's what they got to do. You know, my counselors have told me you, you weren't old enough to realize you had a choice because I didn't think so. Early on, the people who abused me told me around eight or nine that, you know, by the time you turn 19 or 20, you should probably just die because you won't be worth anything anymore. Um, so I approached my 20th birthday with great apprehension, got through it. And at that point, I finally, I just sort of decided no one's ever going to do this to me again against my will. And I was for a long time, just an angry young man, an adult, and didn't trust anybody very well, just because when you grow up that way, you just don't. You you really, you you develop an image of yourself that, that people get to use you and they're just gonna hurt you. And so the only and then when I became big enough to fight back, it's like, yeah, okay. But you know, that was that was a situation. Now how I got into that early on, you know, predators have the ability to spot children who are vulnerable. I have an extremely outgoing personality. I've done personality tests. They say you're you're one who tends to be a peacemaker and you're an extrovert and someone who likes to please. And so they used all those things 
against me in our in our home there was a lot of dysfunctionality beaten on and i got told early on that i was not supposed to be born one of my grandparents was you know you almost killed your mother when you were born i heard that many times which obviously isn't the child's choice i became very vulnerable and i tell people you know i just wanted to be to feel loved i realize now i was loved at home but they twisted it the meaning of that word and convinced me that was love if i let them do those things and then later on as a teenager i decided it was fake love but i told myself well fake is better than nothing and then as a young adult i said well no it isn't so i'll just be me that's where i was so that's how it all took off Okay, I do have a few questions. The first one is, you made a statement that I found very interesting about the vulnerable children. I always assumed that they would be the introverts, and you are saying, no, it's the extroverts. Why? Well, I think the introverts are probably more vulnerable at home, and this is just a guess because I'm not a psychologist. I mean, the extroverts are vulnerable because... Even though I've been told not to get into cars, people would lie and say, well, we know your parents and you can come with us. Well, I believe that. And I liked meeting new people and talking to people and stuff. And so, you know, that made me accessible. Um, My brother is is much more quiet and low-key and introverted than I am. And he was never susceptible to that because somebody asked him to get in the car, you know, as a preteen. He would have been like, uh, no, and ran away. Interesting. Now, you did mention that your parents and your home life was dysfunctional, but this is not necessarily the only scenario. These people, these predators, can certainly prey on people or kids who come from a good, solid home as well, correct? Yes, I, I believe that's true. Okay. Now, the next question is one regarding fear. My guess is you lived in a state of fear. How long did it take, in other words, for you to come out from under that? Was it not until you were 20 years old and said, enough already? Or did you not feel that fear because you were squelching it? That was a a constant state, really, until I got counseling. Yeah, it, it was always there. But I learned to sort of just be aware of it. And I figured, I guess, you know, it's like, okay, this is my own self telling me danger or something, even if there wasn't. There was always a fear of people finding out because I thought, you know, if people knew what had been done to me, they would be so creeped out by that that they wouldn't want me around. I'll tell you another thing, too. I used to, when I was little, I got hurt one time because I was nine and the person had been promised a seven-year-old. And as a teenager, somebody thought I was 13 and I was 15 and they were trying to, you know, hit on me and physically did hit me because it's like, yeah, you're too old. And and so I learned to lie about my age, figure out what people thought, um, because I've always looked much younger than physically than I am. So I figured, okay, I'll just figure out what age they think I am and pretend to be that. And that's the safe way to be. So I didn't for about for many years even celebrate my birthday simply because to me it was like why celebrate my being born there was 
there's no reason. So, you know, yeah, the fear was always there. Something you work through in counseling. One of the things that you mentioned was that you lost your identity, which is normal. Is this sometimes where children, because of whatever type of abuse they may be going through, that they assume another identity or a uh, special friend? What can you share about that? Well, I can tell you that dissociative, it's my understanding that dissociative identity disorder is um, more prevalent in probably children below the age of 10. And if they're in an extremely traumatic dis- situation, they, they learn to dissociate, and I did. I do deal with that. I realized later through the counseling process that depending on the situation, the one responding might be the 10-year-old me, the 19-year-old me, the 30-year-old me or whatever. There's a really good movie I like about Charles Dickens called The Man Who Invented Christmas. And in that movie, his wife says to him, sometimes I don't know which you I'm talking to. And my wife, she felt the same way. I learned later that Dickens had grown up in a traumatic situation, probably had DID. Really? Yeah. He, uh, a lot of his characters, that's a great movie that The Man Who Invented Christmas because it gives you the backstory of a Christmas carol. You know, so I worked through a lot of that in counseling. Um, now certain things can still bring up the angry me at 19 or 20 or the mischievous 10 or 11 year old. But I know when that side is out and it's like, okay, then you balance it out with your rational adult self so you can learn to deal with it. It creeped me out the first time I learned that I had that because I thought, oh, great, something else is wrong because I'm like Sybil, <laughs> you know, with 100 personality. <laughs> my counselor pointed out that's not your – yes, that's true of some people, but that's not your situation. You don't have 100 different yous inside who don't know each other. You're fully aware of all of the different facets. So you learn to deal with it. I have an amazing wife, and she deals with it too, and she's incredible. So – but yeah – dissociation as a way that it takes a child away from a traumatic situation. When I was used in the pornography and people were doing pretty horrific things, I just went away. I remember that. Mm, Uh, mm -hmm. But what you're left with are sort of snippets of images. They come into your mind and and that's what haunted me for years, thinking, why did I see only pieces of these things? Well, then you have to go and you put the pieces together, and that's a oh-so-much-fun process. In fact, I will be honest with your audience and tell you it bites. But the good thing is, once you're done, it's like opening a wound and getting it cleaned out, and then it can heal. Well, I appreciate everything that you have shared thus far, and I know that, well, it can be very difficult for anyone in your position to share because you are remembering and you are doing this a lot because you are involved with helping kids who have gone through this, and so it's brought up constantly, and I sincerely appreciate you sharing that story, but we do want to switch gears a bit because... There is a positive side, a wonderful side to this story, and that is what you are doing now. So my first question in that regard is, based on 15 years of studies that had been done, a study was done in 2016, ECPAT, E-C-P-A-T, USA, which clearly showed that boys are just as vulnerable to this as girls, and yet when they try to seek help, they are often met with indifference. Can you address that, please? 
Yeah, you know, I'm on the what's called the Survivor Boys Council at ECPAT, and I realized actually I got the date wrong. That initial study came out in 2013, but they looked at a number of smaller studies that were done and um, have shown that that boys in the United States are 50% of the victims. In fact, boys are more likely to be used in child sexual abuse material in the U.S., which unfortunately is a the U.S. is the larger largest producer of that. Um, they do, you know, the people making it do live streams from all over the world, but they it originated, you know, set up here in the U.S. But yeah, based on the information they provide, the study is called End Boys Two, and you know, it, it's very clearly shown that males under the age of eighteen are just as likely as females to be abused. So. You know, when people want to tell me that 99% of the buyers are men um, and 99% of the victims are women and girls, my answer is that that's simply not correct in the United States. And child trafficking, child abuse material is a $50 billion a year industry. Yeah, it's it's just an estimate because nobody really knows for sure. But here in the U.S. alone, globally, it's estimated to be at about $140 billion. And so, you know, my my challenge is to get people to read the study, update your information and, you know, realize that boys need help, too. You know, the ECPAT study speaks for itself. They're talking about doing an update. You know, the the director there, Lori, is a friend of mine. She said, you've inspired me. We need to update our study. So I may get involved with that, too. But um, well, why is this important? Like what, what, what should the audience know about this and uh, as far as why it's important? Well, uh, it's real simple if you want to look at numbers. I, I looked at the U.S. Census data from the last time it was taken, and it's my understanding there are 300,000 children in the United States under the age of 18. If you figure that one in four boys or one in four girls is going to be verbally, physically, emotionally, or sexually abused by the time they turn 18, that's that's out of 300,000, the 25% of that is the number of kids who are being hurt and wow. boys. So I think it comes out to about 35,000 boys or girls across the United States every day um, are subject to some kind of abuse. That, that ain't no small number. That's why it's important. Right. Okay. But when people want to tell me that, like I'm involved with several projects to get safe houses built for boys, we have three here in Colorado for girls, and a couple of them had to shut down because of COVID. I believe they'll reopen. They're doing amazing work, but I'm working with a group now trying to get one built for boys. There's blowback coming to that. People are saying, well, we still need beds for girls. And my answer is, we have empty beds here in Colorado, and we have girls who are being rescued that can be placed there. We have boys that are being rescued, and what happens to them is they get dumped into the juvenile justice system. Oh, no. There's no place to put them. So don't tell me that we need more beds for girls when you've got empty beds available and nothing for half the victims here. That's why it's important. No kidding. and, and, And I understand the work that other organizations are doing, and I appreciate it, but I think it just, for me, is frustrating when people want to speak against my effort to promote uh-huh. building safe houses for for males because they think more needs to be done. Well, more needs to be done in the, all situations, but right now there's nothing for boys. Every state I would bet has safe houses for girls 
I'm only aware of two, I think, in Florida that exist for boys and one being built in Texas, one here in Colorado, one is proposed in Arizona that I'm working with. So that's um, five total. Awareness is crucial, I'm guessing. And you have, I have a note here that you have spoken to over three and a half million people worldwide. They've either you've spoken or you they've read your book, your blog posts, your articles, etc. So the right. first thing is I applaud you because you obviously have found your purpose and you have taken, you know, your victimhood per se and turned it into one of victory and you have taken uh, and used, you know, this incredible life that you had as a child and turned it around to help other people. And that's what life is all about and I'm so I applaud you I am so I don't want to use in word impressed but that's essentially what it is so impressed by your efforts and what you are doing will continue to do and your heart your empathy have to be in the right place (laughs) for, for a lack of better term because you have been there you understand it you are taking the message you are doing something not just by sharing your story but also doing some hands on work and changing what is going on is there anything that my audience that we can do to help in this regard I think if you work in organizations that are involved in helping kids in trafficking if they if they use online imagery for example truthfully 99% of the sites of organizations that do this kind of work only show girls and so I would encourage people to say, why are we not and can we do something for boys? Um, Good, okay. July 31st was World Anti-Human Trafficking Day, and I saw a number of sites, including organizations I worked with, that one of them posted a, a thing that said, one girl sold is one too many. And I said, why don't you just change mm. and say one child? And the answer I got from them was, well, that's not our founder's vision. And I wow. said, well... Maybe it's time to update the vision because no kidding. claim that you care about children being trafficked. Why can't you just say child because that includes the girls and, and the boys as well. But when you say one girl, you're, you're allowing people to continue to believe the myth out there that only girls are trafficked and boys never are. And, you know, so we've got to help that. Another thing people can do is push for when there's legislation going through to make it gender neutral will say that I'm a faith-based group and I take a biblical perspective there too. But, you know, make it general, gender neutral. A lot of the language coming out these days says, skews it towards saying um, resources need to be directed towards females because they bear a disproportionate share of, of trafficking situations, which again, is simply not mm-hmm, true. Mm-hmm. But it's like, so does, what that does is let people off the hook for doing anything to help boys. I mean, I don't care if it's one in a thousand. If you get a boy rescued out of trafficking, you need to help him. So I would say look at the legislation, make sure that it's, it's broad enough to be inclusive for all children. I'm certainly available to come and speak, too, and I will speak to organizations and share my story. Uh, I'll speak in churches and share my testimony, and I'll, I'll tell people, this is my real situation. I'm a living, breathing person, and there are millions like me around the world. And here in the United States, I know a friend of mine 
was appointed by President Obama to his um, anti-human trafficking council, or he was reappointed by President Trump. And then I think he's since left that, that position at the end of the last administration. But he told me that he is well aware that 99% of the federal dollars that generate training information to speak about trafficking only speak about girls. And he said, you and I are, because he's a survivor as well, are survivors. So we get 1% of the message when we're half the victims. And I said, well, Rob, you're sitting in the Oval Office and push to change it. And when people sit there and say, we need more survivors on this council, get more guys. There's people like me out that's there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But so that's the kind of thing we need to do. Oh, my goodness. I'm so thankful that you did bring that up. And we definitely will. When we share your story, we're definitely going to ask people to do just that. Let's change it at the, at the ground, right? We're going to take a very quick break for just 30 seconds. And when we come back, I want to hear about not just your book, which is amazing, but also what else is coming as a result of that book and the ministry that you have in Colorado. So we'll be right back, and we can't wait to hear the rest of this story. Thank you. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Sean Wheeler, for what you have shared already today regarding what is really going on in the child trafficking situation within our country and obviously worldwide. You have made us aware of things that I don't think the average person is aware of and I especially appreciate what you said about this being not just a problem among girls and teenagers but also among boys and teenagers and what happens to them as they seem to get lost in the system and so I really appreciate all of that you shared and bringing us to that awareness. Now you have written a book which is called Wretch, Haunted by Shadows, Rescued by Jesus. I do want to say that I absolutely loved the book cover where it shows a young boy with a hand placed over his mouth to keep him quiet. So if you could share a little bit about your book and also what's coming as a result of that, that would be awesome. That actually started when I first met my first counselor. She talked about her work with uh, abused children in the the last church that I attended. And I went up to her afterwards, started talking to her, trying to be so nonchalant. She just looked at me and said, when were you abused? <laughs> And it made me tear up. It's like, how'd you know? And she said, I can see it in your eyes. Wow. See, no one had ever said that before. So she said, you know, I've never worked with a man or a boy before, and um, but I would be happy to work with you, and I feel like it's a God-led thing. And so we talked about it, and we started meeting. And the first thing she was, well, you know, so how do we start? Where do we 
you know, how do you get this story going? And it's like, I don't talk very well without blubbering, and I've never shared this anyway. She said, well, can you write? And I said, that I can do, um, because I, I do have a degree in journalism, so I start writing. And then I'd come to the session the next day and start reading the paragraphs I wrote without looking up, and she's doing her her needlepoint while listening. <laughs> and she says, you know, I think someday you're going to write a book and I said, no, I'm not. And she said, and I think someday you're going to be sharing your, your testimony worldwide. And I said, again, no, I'm not. You just taught me about a guy who whispered, made the sign. He can make this all go away and give me a normal life. And she said, yes, he could. But I think you're going to write a book and you're going to be speaking. And that was the end of that as far as she was concerned. So I just kept writing. And then I started. That became the genesis of the book which was published in 2016. It took me five years to write because I had to write about what I what it talks about is the challenges I first met when I tried to find help, the situations that I went through, the counseling processes that we did, and the follow-on. So that's all a part of it. Over the years, a couple of people contacted me about making short documentaries or something, I was never really interested because I thought I've seen a lot of these dusty shelves that no one ever looks at. If my story is going to be told, I want it told in a in a bigger way. Well, eventually, some filmmakers, Christian filmmakers, actually got a hold of the idea. They reached out to me. They're connected with Pure Flix. Um, one of the guys on the production team reached out and said, we can help you turn this into a movie. And I said, all right. It just seemed the right thing to do. <laughs> and then they started talking like real movies. like you know, Big screen. Yes. And they're saying, well, we'll need about, you know, we could start with a million, but it'd be better if we had 10 million to start and 20 to finish. <laughs> and I thought, who the heck has 30 million bucks? Well, I found <laughs> there's people in the arts world who will fund this. Mm-hmm. They write a check for the entire thing. And so the script process began. The other guy on the team took my book and wrote an outline and he said, unfortunately, you're you're going to have to be the one to write these scenes because none of us can. And so I learned about script writing. I thought, well, I can get through this pretty easy because I speak about it all the time. Well, it took me five months to write, <laughs> to write my portion of the script, which was basically filling in all the gaps. Now, it's on the sixth edition. We have a screenplay writer um, working with us in Hollywood, and I really can't share names at this point of who's who's involved with it, but potentially they're telling me it'll go through another 10, 12 revisions. And then once we get a producer and director hired, they'll work with it too. But they are convinced that um, it'll be on the, something on the case of, and the level of the case for Christ or war room or one of those films, pure wow. may be our distributor. I'm hoping we can connect with them once we get the budget in place. And I laughed. I said, you know, because you, I think, seen my picture. It's, it's like, hey, we could get Bruce Willis to play me. And, <laughs> and the production team smiled and said, that's not beyond the realm of possibility with what we're doing. It's like, holy cromoly. So, you know, that's that's the level of film yes. we want to have produced. The, the t- working title of the film would be Haunted by Shadows. And the, the tagline for the movie right now is uh, finding grace more powerful than sin. Wow. That's awesome. And I'm just blown away. Yes. To meet with some people in the next few months who are literally philanthropists that 
could get us the initial seed money. Once we had that, I found out there's a number of stages to go through, but eventually we hire a producer. The producer hires the director and the director hires the talent, you know. So they said, if we get the money we're looking, we think we're going to get, we can probably get some pretty big names involved. So my dear sweet wife is like, so there's going to be me in a movie and who's going to play me? And, and it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> but I said, we could dream big. <laughs> we'll make it, you know, Bruce Willis and Sandra Bullock. Playing there you out. go. There you oh. go. But the, the important thing, and I know that you agree with me, is the message. And that's what's going to get out there. And that's so what's what kind of date are you looking at? Two years, three years, one year? Any idea? My hope is a 2023 release in theaters. And, you know, it's going to be how quickly in the next six months we can get financing raised. Right, right. All that sort of thing. And, and my senior pastor and friend who's also in the movie, part of his sermon, sermon message the past couple of weeks, and I know he wasn't speaking at me, but just letting people know, he said, you're, you're not the star of your own movie. Jesus is the star. <laughs> And I'm totally okay with it. Yes, it's my story. But like the first time I shared my testimony in 2014 at a small church in Louisiana, I got asked to speak. I promised God I would speak. And I went, I don't know how to tell this, Lord. I don't, I don't know how to tell people what people did to me and, and all that stuff. And, and the answer I got very clearly was it's not about what people did to you or your, even your own stupid mistakes. It's about what I did for you, what I'm doing in you, and what I'm going to do through you. Amen. And so he really is the star of it. And yes, my name is in there. I debated whether or not I should use a fictitious name, and I decided not to because I thought one of the things that will come up on the, the screen when the movie starts is, this is a true story. Right, right. And yeah, I'm. You know, we went and saw respect about Aretha Franklin not long ago, which I love the movie. Um, yes, I saw that too. She was abused horrifically as well. Yes. But she was involved in the early production stages of that film and has passed away. And so a lot of films are made by people who are no longer here. I would rather it get made and that helped me to grow the work I'm doing. You know, yes, so good point. This is the real person. Yes. And, that's where we're at. Yeah, there's a whole lot of stages involved, and the production team said, just so you know, producers and directors don't like to be micromanaged. I said, that's fine <laughs> with me. You know, if, if we're paying somebody literally $300,000 to direct a film, which may be what they get, there's a reason for that. They know what they're doing. If they ask me what I think about something, I'll be happy to tell them, but I'm not going to micromanage because right. I hate, like any movie, it'll probably have things that I look at later and think, hey, we should have done this differently or that differently. But, you know, it, ultimately, my story is God's glory. That's a beautiful way to summarize. You have come basically from the pit of hell in sharing what happened to you as a young boy and then being rescued and now being able to share and share that not just your story but what we can do and what the movie hopefully which will be out soon can do to bring awareness to bring comfort to those who possibly know someone who has gone through this or I mean there's so many different avenues so many different types of people that will be touched it's not just a story 
but it's it's a message and as you said we're showing that God gets the glory and that God brought you through and that message can be for anyone who might be going through something it doesn't even have to be sexual abuse but any anything that they may be going through that God cares and God loves them anything you would like to say in some yeah I'll just simply say that that's absolutely right I mean I've had people come speak to me and I've had over 400 guys contact me and say because you got help I can mm. I can do what you do and that's, yes. that's I am a person comfortable in public speaking you don't necessarily have to but you don't have to mm-hmm. live in this silence any longer. And, and I tell people, you know, what happened is not the end of my story, and it doesn't have to be the end of yours either. That's my tagline for my life. That's so funny on, on my website. This is not the end of your story. You know, I think, too, that it, it's basically offering hope. Cause yes, exactly. When people denied me hope, and yet I know not had we a God thing, there was still some hope inside. And it's like, you may think I'm just a thing. Or a bad kid, right, 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 or whatever. But there's, I don't think that's the whole truth. And so I found the truth, and that it offered me hope. At the end of my life, I think uh, if I have a tombstone, although I might be buried at sea because I was in the navy, but, um, but other than my name and the dates, the only other word I want on it is redeemed. I've oh that that really touched me, and I know it is touching our audience. Thank you so much, Sean for sharing on never ever give up hope that's right because um we we serve a god who can move mountains and i've seen him move many many mountains in my life and yeah i still do counseling and sometimes people ask me you know how much of this is left and I all I can tell them is I, I don't know but I know mm. what's left behind yeah and my work will continue with starfish in the the prison ministry that I do now in the speaking that I do now it's just um, I have found my purpose but yes told- that's right oh Sean I thank you again so much for sharing from your heart today and if we can help any number of children in whatever way that as you gave us some suggestions on how to do that and also to become aware that this is indeed a problem but every problem has a solution and you have made that exquisitely clear so again thank you for being on never ever give up hope and that's what we always will do amen to that thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.